Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ari Van Wilden. I'm the pastoral intern here, and it is a joy to be with you and to be able to turn to God's Word for our sermon today. We'll be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, it should also be printed in the bulletin. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. This is the Word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you're using pretty much any medium, whether it be movies, books, television, or music, you've likely noticed that there's one reoccurring theme that dominates each and every one of these mediums. And that, of course, is the topic of love. We can think of countless musicians that have written songs about love. We might think, for the kids here today, we might think about Taylor Swift's song, Lover, where she actively expresses her affection towards her significant other, and specifically the way that she desires to be cared for by her significant other as well. We might also think of Ed Sheeran's hit song, Thinking Out Loud, where he does exactly that. He thinks out loud about how much he loves and cares for his significant other and also the way that he desires to be loved and cared for by her as well. I couldn't think of any older 80s or 70s songs, so you'll just have to stick with, you'll have to be content with those. We can think of countless TV shows as we turn on TV and flip through the channels. We see many shows that are centered around love. Perhaps most prominently, we see The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Just to be clear, I don't watch these shows, and I'm not endorsing these by any, any imagine. But these shows are focused around finding one contestant the love of their life, or supposedly the love of their life. They're supposed to, they go through these different dates, and they talk to these people, and they get to know the people, and then at the end of the show, they pick which one they love the most. We can think of countless books, too, countless romance novels, where the main plot is that one person finding their romance and their lover at the end of the book. Not only in the fiction world do we see this, but we also see this in the nonfiction world as too. One book that has been particularly popular in recent years is something called The Five Love Languages, a book designed to help you understand the way that you best receive love, but also to help you understand how you can give love to others that's best suited for them based on the five different ways that you can receive love. Parents, if you have kids or if anybody here has talked to college students recently, there's probably a good chance you've heard them mention or talk about something called the Enneagram personality test. And this is a personality test that kind of swept the land and it assigns to you a personality number. And something that the test also helps is that it helps you figure out which numbers you would and would not be compatible with romantically, which which numbers would clash, which personalities are unhelpful to each other. But even outside of popular media, we recognize that love is a prominent theme in our lives as well. 
for the kids here today, you might think of love in a way of you're playing with a friend and they let you pick the game or activity that you're going to do for that day. Or maybe for those who are married, maybe it's your spouse taking you out on a date that is more for you than for them. And they do so with minimal complaining and minimal snide comments. Or maybe just any of us here with family and friends, we can all think of ways in which we feel loved and cared for by our friends in ways that are special and unique to us. And while none of these things are bad, these things are all good, I would say, I think if we're honest with ourselves, the way that we think about the love we want to receive is rarely actually the deepest and most prominent way we need to be loved. Today in our passage, we see that we have been loved in the most important and needed way through Christ Jesus. And so we're going to look at our passage in three points today. We're going to look at first the expectation of love, second the example of love, and then finally the effect of love. So the expectation of love, the example of love, and then the effect of love. So if you looked at the, the passage in the first, the, first, uh, the first verse, it says, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has not been born of God and knows God. John here is marking something that marks the life and the fruit of a Christian, namely that they love one another. And it is by virtue of their love for one another that we can conclude that they have been born of God and that they know God. They have a personal relationship with God. And if you look at the passage right before in your Bibles, you'll see that 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 section is titled Test the Spirits. And John is doing a similar thing here. He talks about how people can discern between the spirits that are false and not from God and those spirits that are from God. He's kind of giving a test for how we can know and discern which spirits are true, which spirits are false. John similarly also does the same thing here. He points out that people who love God is a virtue that they know God. It is no surprise. It is not something that's coerced or forced in them, but love is a very natural and organic fruit that comes from being born of God and knowing him. It's not something that's forced. It's not something that God's people do with clenched teeth and clenched fists bitterly as they love their neighbor, but a fruit that grows naturally from a tree that has been born of God. We, think, we can think of examples of this in our own lives. Maybe it's in your work. You think if you work for a very specific company, you're expected to adopt certain mentalities that come with being in that company. It might be specific values to the company that you're expected to adhere to by virtue of just being a part of that company, or a specific type of work ethic. We might also think of our families as well. Many of us here have long-standing family traditions that we do. Maybe it's around the holidays or other times. But when a new child is born into the family, there's a natural expectation that they will too participate in these traditions that have been handed down for years before they were even born. In a similar way, probably most strikingly, we see this with parents and their children, given namely specifically with the physical resemblance of children with their parents. I think some of us here can think of families when there's a new child born into the family, even they might be a few weeks old or a month old, and you would just look at the baby and you know for certain what family that baby belongs to because they already look like their parents. They look so much like their parents and their physical resemblance. In my own family, this is what we call the Van Wilden nose. 
all the men in my family, my dad and my uncle and my grandfather when he was still living, we all share this trait, particularly the largeness and the pointedness of our noses. It is the marker that when you look at us and you look at our nose, you definitively know which family you belong to. You say, that, that's a Van Wilden with that nose. In the same way, John says that this is how we identify those who are in God's community, that they love one another. It is a virtue that they know, that they know God, and as a result, the fruit is that they love others. Now, it is no surprise that John says that this is a definitive marker of someone who's been born again, that he would go on to contrast it to say that if someone does not love, they don't know God in the next verse. In verse 8, he says, anybody who does not love does not know God because God is love. Because God is the very source of love that sows that in our hearts. If someone does not, if someone does not practice that in their lives, it is very evident that they do not have a relationship with God. Now, a few things need to be clarified here. Is John talking about, where does John talk about the source of our love? I would like to point out that the source of our love is not ourselves, that we need to just look inside our hearts and say, we can do better, or look at ways that we can love our neighbor better. But the, the source of how we love one another is always God. It's always a fruit that God sows in our hearts. And the second thing to clarify is, what kind of love is John talking about here? Is John talking about a, a kind of love that's reciprocated, that's, that's given when, when took? A love that helps one another when one is helped? But also, that John's not what, that's not what John's saying here either, because the source, the source of the love is God, and because God is the source, the love also needs to emulate what God's, life, what God's love is like, namely selfless and self-giving. We must not think that this is a love that is meant to be reciprocated or a love that is only when you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Jesus confronts us with this question saying, for, what, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? But it is this pure love that is born of God that is selfless and sacrificial and looks outward towards its neighbor to how to love and serve its neighbor and glorify God in doing so that John is talking about here. Love, faith and love are so closely connected together that John Calvin said, for when anyone, for when anyone separates faith from love, it is the same as though he attempted to take away heat from the sun. These two things are inseparable and must be kept together. And now before we, before we run forward, before we start to point the finger and think of those in our lives who are, who are unloving, who are unkind, we have to be honest about how we fall short in loving God and neighbor and our own duty. Maybe it's with a friend and a particular friendship that you feel that you are particularly selfish and you always do what you want to do. That's often my fault, being selfish in my relationships. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and maybe you're dreading that one family member that you have to see every year that just drives you absolutely nuts at Thanksgiving every year. And when you look in your heart, you admit that there's a little bit of bitterness 
and a grudge that you've been continuing to nurse at that person just to have an excuse to still be mad at them every holiday? What about our relationship with God? Do we do this perfectly as well? How easy is it after a long day of work and other responsibilities to come home and the very first thing that we do is turn on TV or Netflix rather than open our Bibles or pray for the first time that day? How tempting is it to think about staying in our nice warm beds and sleeping in on Sunday mornings rather than going to the house of the Lord and worshiping with his saints. But I think if we're honest, we realize how, fall, how far we just fall short of our duty to God and neighbor. And this is why God's law as a mirror is so important. Now, I know this is odd to say, but a mirror is particularly revealing. It has a way of showing us things that we did not always want to see, or a way of correcting us when we think that we're doing better than we actually are. Just an example from my own life this week. I was getting ready. I had to go out. I had a meeting I had to get ready for. And so I put on nice dress pants. I put on a nice collared shirt, dress shirt, and then I put a sweater over it. The only thing left was to pick what shoes I would wear. And out of all the nice shoes that I had, I chose to go with my Under Armour tennis shoes to complete this outfit. The problem was that I didn't look in the mirror before I left to go to this meeting. So as I was walking around, I was only looking at it from my perspective. And I said, this is perfect. This is the perfect balance of business casual. I finally have found it with these shoes. The problem was when I went back to my apartment an hour later and I looked in the mirror and I was like, this looks awful. It looks terrible. In the same way, God's law does a similar thing to us. It has a way of revealing that we're not doing as well as we think. It has a way of correcting our false assumptions. When we look into the law, we are confronted with just how far we fall short in every way of both our duty to love God and to love neighbor. And not only the ways that we fall short, but also the depth of the ways that we fall short. I love what Martin Luther says about the depth of love we ought to have for our neighbor when he writes, it ought to be distressed that the condition of its neighbor is not better than its own. It ought to wish its neighbor were condition, its neighbor's condition were better than its own. And if its neighbor's condition is better, it ought to rejoice no less than it rejoices when its own is better. Friends, we fall short drastically of how we ought to love God and love our neighbor in every way. But is that simply what John is doing here? Is he simply beating us over the head with this commandment, telling we ought to love one another and go out and do better? That's not what John is doing at all because we see that John does not turn us inward and give us a fresh start to go out and do better. But John turns us to an example of love in Christ Jesus. Now we come to our second point. So we read in verse 9 that John writes, In this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We might think of Paul's language that is very similar here in Galatians 4.4 that he writes, In the fullness of time, the father sent forth the son to be born of a woman, born under the law. And this is so important because it said that God's love is manifested. This is not some abstract ideal, but this is a historical reality that Christ came to live in our world. 
Christ was fully human, yet without sin. He came forth into our world. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Christ, like you and I, had teeth, had fingernails, skin, got hungry, took naps, got thirsty, experienced physical pain. Christ, in every way, was made human. And we see that it's Christ coming into the world, being born under the law, that is important to us because we will see that it is in part his perfect righteousness and his life and fulfillment of the law that later becomes ours when we trust in him in faith. This is love, is what John says. This is an example of love. That the Father sent the Son into our sin-cursed world and fallen world. And while this happened in the fullness of time, do you remember what the first promise was that the Son would come? It was in Genesis 3 after the fall. If we think of Genesis just briefly, it's God creating in his majesty and wisdom, creating the earth, creating the land, the seas, the animals. And then finally, the crown jewel of his creation, man and woman, his image bearers. He creates his image bearers to be in communion with them and at the first opportunity, they rebel against God and sin and turn against him by eating, eating the fruit. And it's after this fall that Christ promised that there would be a, a redeemer that would come. God looked down and had every right when Adam and Eve rebelled to cast them out forever and to have no more relation with his creation but God promised that there would be a redeemer. And the Father looked down and saw us in our sin and misery and how we fell short and sent forth a solution in his son Jesus to our sin-cursed world, sent a redeemer forth that we might be redeemed from our guilt and our sin. The son came, was made man, lived in our sin-cursed world, was born under the law so that we might live through him. This is beautiful reality that we have in Christ. But John takes it a step further in verse 10 when he writes, In this is the love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. John not only tells us that the Father saw us without, without a Savior and sent a Savior forth, but John also here dismisses, he takes it a step further because he dismisses any notion of merit or goodness within us that was a result of why we received Christ. We were not even aware of God. We were rebelling against him, actively sinning against him. We were enemies, as Romans 5 says. And there might be some of you here today that are Christians who might be struggling with a particular sin. You might be thinking, does God really love me as I still struggle with this particular sin? Beloved, this is why we must look to Christ, because when we look in our sides, we only, we only find despair. But we see that even before we had everything together, we were perfect. We were, even, we were not righteous in any way that God loved us. We rest in this promise, not that we have everything together, but we rest in the perfect work that Christ has done on our behalf. I would encourage you, go before the Lord 
in confession with the sin that you're struggling with or talk to one of our pastors here or a trusted friend. But God is not waiting for you to get everything together and to come to him because we rest perfectly on what Christ has done for us. John also mentions that Christ not only came, was born under the law, and had perfect righteousness in his life, but he also came and demonstrated his love in sending Christ to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is not a word that we use very often. I would say where I'm from that you wouldn't talk about this at the bubbler at your work, but nobody, would, nobody knows what that is here, so I'll say you wouldn't talk about this at the water cooler at your workstations. You probably don't talk about this at dinner when you ask about how your days were. This probably is not the first topic that comes up. But this word is very important for what the passage is saying. It is Christ as a propitiation for our sins, not only his perfect life, but his death on the cross that's at mind here. Because the idea of propitiation has with it it is something that is necessitated by sin. There needed to be a substitute for the sin that had happened on our behalf. And so what we see at the cross, we see we have our guilt and our shame, and our guilt and our shame is given to Christ on the cross, and he suffers God's wrath on our behalf and appeases God's wrath on our behalf. Being perfectly righteous, God still does this for us, in love. And so it is through Christ's perfect righteousness in his life, his perfect fulfillment of the law, and his coming and being made man, never sinning, being perfectly righteous, and his death on the cross and being buried and resurrected the third day, that now those who are in Christ stand before God as righteous. One theologian put it, God has clothed us with Christ's righteousness as with a garment. In Christ, we stand spotless before the judgment throne. Indeed, this is the reality for all those who are in Christ, that there is now, there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we no longer look at him as judge, but now being in Christ, we look at him as father. We rest in what Christ has done on our behalf. And we get, to, we get to rejoice and worship him as our God. But this is not where John leaves us. He gives us, gives us an expectation as well. Having had this glorious reality, told us about what Christ has done in the good news of the gospel, John then calls us to action upon reflection of the love that's been given to us. He starts off verse 11 by saying, Beloved, in the Greek, this is used when you want to address people as endearing. It's meant to be a sweet kind of addressing to the writers that John's hearing. I also believe we're meant to slow down here. He's just come off his gospel verses that he's talked about, what's been done for us in Christ. And I believe that John's kind of reflecting He's saying, beloved, think about what has been done for you in Christ and then moves to action. He says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, it's, it might be said that God's love serves as an obligation for us to then love one another. 
But this, this might be misconceiving because it might make us believe that we're the source of how we love one another after we've been born again. But we have to remember that love is a fruit of the Spirit. And it, God is the source of our love. And it's the gospel that we look at and how we've been loved and then we love others. The gospel must be as beautiful and magnificent to us each and every day as it was that the very first day that we believed. There's never not a day that we don't need the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ each and every second, each and every day as we walk through this life. We never graduate from the gospel, but the gospel is our very source of life each and every day that we walk on this earth. And so this gospel, this great love, this outpouring of Christ's love also necessitates our obligation to love our neighbors as well. So that is what John is calling us to. If God has so loved us, we also ought to love our neighbor. And since God is the source, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. The person of the Holy Spirit lives within us. And it is by him that the, the fruit of love is worked, that we love our neighbor through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is our seal for the day of redemption. He's our advocate, our helper, and God has given him to us as a sign and assurance that we are God's, that we belong to him. And it is through the same Spirit that the flesh is put to death and the new man made alive, and we're conformed more and more to the image of God. B.B. Warfield, recognizing these two things together, said, Do we not rightly say that next to our longing to be in Christ is our corresponding, corresponding desire to be like Christ? After we are in Christ, it is our privilege to love others as Christ has loved us and be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. I think sometimes when we think of love, we think of great examples of love as Christ has shown us. And that's great to think of Christ, but I think sometimes that deters us away from doing other things that might be ordinary things or less extraordinary things in love every day to our neighbor. As I mentioned, Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and the holidays are often a great time to love people in ways that might not seem that special, but really go a long way for people. And we can love and serve our neighbors each and every day in really ordinary ways that we might not have thought of initially. One author I really like writes about just a few simple ways that we can love our neighbor. They said, perhaps this looks like setting aside time in your week to your fellowship with those in church who are isolated or need in particular encouragement or offering your home on a Sunday afternoon for college students who need to stand in family to be a part of. I would also add broke seminary students to that as well. Maybe it's offering to take a meal to someone to help babysit, or to cover the cost of car repairs or a textbook. Or maybe it's helping a friend scrub windows and floors for a few days so they can get their safety deposit back. I don't say this to be exhaustive, but I just bring this to our attention, that we can love and serve our neighbors in such ordinary ways. We can, we can show the love of Christ to people each and every day in really ordinary things as we go out in our jobs and our, at, our, at the various stores that we shop at and all these things. We can manifest the love of Christ. 
But as we manifest the love of Christ, we also remember that love has been manifested for us. And friends, the cross and Christ are so important because Christ came at a specific time in history, lived on this earth as a real person, died on a cross in the walls outside Jerusalem. And it is in this that we remember that Christ and God is always for us when we look back to the Christ. Look to the cross, sorry. If we're ever tempted to doubt God's goodness and love, we may always look to the cross and what Christ has done as an assurance that he is for us as we walk through life often weary and broken down and trialed by the various things of life. And it is, again, this is our hope. It is also then our joy to manifest this to others in a broken and hurting world. We then come to verse 12, the last verse of the passage. And as we read it, we might be kind of reading the first verses. We might read 7 through 11 and then come to this verse and say, this seems pretty disconnected to the, to the rest of the passage. So we'll just, we'll just sit with this for a second. So John writes, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So as you imagine, there's been a lot of ink spilled over these verses to try to figure out what John is talking about here, what on earth is going on. But I believe that John is helpful in his own gospel when he writes in 1 John 18 that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made known to him. I believe what John is alluding to here is that we can only know what God has revealed to us. And what we see is that God has revealed his son, Jesus, to us in history. And so we see that Christ loves us. We know that the Father loves us through the work that Christ has done on our behalf. But then also John says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I believe that while we know that Christ is the one that's been revealed by God, it's what we know about God, his love has been perfected in us because we are the objects of Christ's redeeming love from our guilt and our sin. And his perfect love, we are the objects and the recipients of the perfect love that he has done on our behalf. But John also mentions that God abides in us. This again is the person of the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts, continuing to conform us more and more to the image of God. And it is by this spirit that we are sanctified and the fruit of the spirit sown in our hearts that in our struggles and our relationships and with others, the spirit is sanctifying us, making us more patient in our conversations with our spouses and annoying family members. This is the spirit who sows love in our hearts so that we may endure difficult seasons with people are very difficult to be around. This is the spirit that sows joy in our hearts that we may be always reminded of the glorious realities of the gospel that we have, the joy that we can share with others. And all these things, Christ is continuing to conform us more and more to the image of Son, of his Son, who lived and died for us and was raised again. And now by that same spirit, we share in that resurrection power the resurrecting power that raised Christ from the dead. And so we do not despair. We, know, we look to the cross and see that God has loved us through his son Jesus, that Christ is for us. 
but that God has also given his spirit to us and continues his presence in us and will one day, by that same power, raise our bodies to be glorified and we will be with Christ in heaven in eternity where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death. And we will join in with the angels in the chorus and praise God singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word, similar to your law, helps us in our misconceptions of how God loves us, that we do see indeed that you do love us even when we don't have everything together, even when everything's not put together and our lives are perfect, that you have loved us and your son Jesus and um, satisfied the perfect satisfaction of your wrath, Lord. And now we are clothed in Christ's righteousness as with a garment and stand spotless before you. And we call you Abba Father through the spirit of adoption. We thank you for all these promises, all these truths. I pray that you would seal these, seal your word on our hearts as we go out. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.